Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus. Amen. As a church, for the last three weeks, this being the fourth week, we've been journeying through the book of Acts, taking a, a chunk of the book of Acts at a time. And, and today we're in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey uh, through the, the Mediterranean world, kind of modern-day Turkey and, and Greece, uh, and we'll talk more about that. Um, and, and the part we're going to focus on today, Paul ends up in the city of Athens, which is still there. It's in modern-day Greece, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And when Paul ends up in Athens, if you read it in context, it doesn't seem like Paul really intended to go to Athens. He was going to some different cities, and, and right before this, he was in a city called Berea. And people were actually listening to him pretty well in Berea. It was a pretty good experience. But then some Jews from the city of Thessalonica heard that he was here, and they came over to this other city and caused an uproar. Uh, and Paul had already had rocks thrown at him at a different place. And so they were concerned about Paul's safety. So they said, Paul, why don't you go and flee the area, basically. Go on down to Athens. And his friends were with him, uh, Silas and Timothy. And so Silas and Timothy said, we'll stay behind in Berea and finish up the work here. We'll meet up with you in Athens. So Paul goes to Athens. Uh, and this is a, a major cultural hub. And so, so as Paul goes into this big city, this cultural hub that he's never been to before. Uh, verse 16 says that, that his spirit is provoked within him when he sees that their city is full of all kinds of idols. God is at work in him to say, Paul, you should, should do something while you're here, even though you didn't intend to be here. So Paul went, as he, as he customarily did, he went to the, to the Jewish synagogue, which there was, and he started talking to the Jews to tell them, hey, you're looking for the Messiah, the Messiah has come, his name is Jesus, and Paul is telling them. Well, there were other people who heard this, and they were philosophers of the day, uh, and they were just observers in the city listening, listening to Paul. If you know anything about world history or philosophical history, Athens had been a cultural hub uh, of great philosophical thinkers. Maybe you've heard these names before, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, some of those names. They all, they all lived in Athens hundreds of years before Christ, but they were ones whose uh, thinking dominated that part of the world. And then Alexander the Great, if you know this part of the history, he came and took over pretty much the whole known world. And Alexander the Great was a great, uh, a great follower of Greek thought and Greek culture. And so as he's conquering the known world, uh, Greek culture and the Greek language spreads with Alexander the Great. That's how we actually, that's why our New Testament is actually written in the Greek language. It has to do with all of this and Alexander the Great and, and all that. So a little bit of history for you, you can look into it more, but... These philosophers, um, these philosophers, not Aristotle and Plato, but, but people in that kind of liking, are listening to Paul, and they hear him talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, and they say, we'd like to hear more about this. And so they brought him to this place called the Areopagus. Let me show you a picture of this in its modern-day context. Uh, you see this rocky outcropping in the middle? Beyond the rocky outcropping is the city of Athens. This is a modern-day picture, but um, would have looked would look the same uh, uh, at, this, at this time as well. So the Areopagus, that, that rocky outcropping, uh, that's the name for the location, but the Areopagus is also the name for the gathering of people that would meet there. And throughout time, the people of the Areopagus had different responsibilities. At this time, 
their main responsibility, they saw themselves as uh, custodians of foreign gods and other religions. So in this cultural hub, as new ideas or new gods or things you know, come into the cultural hub, the Areopagus has to hear them out and then kind of make it known if it's acceptable or whatnot to have that religion in their city. And so these people, they invite Paul to come up, and we didn't read this section, so I want to just read it for you. These are the verses just prior to what we read today to set it up. But it says this, verses 18 to 21. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's always preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So these people were used to listening to new ideas. And when it came to Christianity, they had no preconceived notions about this Christian, this Christian God. But the interesting thing is they were open to listening. Isn't that cool? They were open to listening. So we see Paul then quite tactfully say to them, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. And the city was just that. I mentioned all these uh, philosophers uh, who had come before. But if you remember your high school literature class, do you remember some gods and goddesses? You know, Athena, Poseidon, Zeus. At least those names ring a bell. Well, in the city of Athens, it was primarily the city of the goddess Athena, all right? But they also had uh, uh, temples built to Poseidon and also to Zeus and others as well. So Paul goes and there's all these, all these idols, all these places, all these, all these things. Uh, just think about this. Think about this for a minute. Paul is standing in front of all these people who are interested and open to hearing about Jesus, but they don't have any idea. They have no background knowledge. And they invite Paul to tell them about Jesus. If you were in Paul's place, let me ask you this. If you were in Paul's place and you were invited to say something about your faith to a, people who are, a group of people who are interested, what would you say? Where would you start? How would you tell the story? How would you speak about the hope that you have in Jesus? Would you know what to do? What does Paul do? Paul points out to them, he says, look at you have this God and this God, and they're literal idols there with inscriptions under them, and they have one to the unknown God. And Paul says, what you say is unknown, let me tell you about a God that I know. Let me tell you about it. So Paul, in his message to the Athenians, it's a different kind of message than he's given to the Jewish people in the past. If you look at it, Paul talks, he starts very broadly with this God who is our creator. And then he works his way down to this God who sent his son, who is our savior, who died and who rose from the dead. The interesting thing when you read it, though, as a Christian, you, you can put all those names in it, but Paul never mentions the name Jesus. He doesn't mention the name of the Hebrew God, Yahweh. He just speaks very generically to them about the message of 
salvation. But when he gets to this idea of the resurrection of the dead, did you see what happened? People start to mock him. People start to mock him. In, in Greek philosophy, in Greek thought, they had no place for the idea of a resurrection from the dead. They were all about having big ideas, having spiritual thoughts. They didn't think too highly of the human body. They thought the body was just like the carrying case for the life within you. And so this whole idea of a resurrection from the dead, it just really had no place in Greek thinking, and so they mock him. However, a couple of people come to faith in him. Uh, Their names are mentioned even here in in the book. Uh, One is Dionysius, the Areopagite, and, uh, and, and then another as well. Church records indicate that eventually this person called Dionysius became bishop in the city of Athens. Whether it's this one or not, we don't know. But Paul had a little bit of an impact there. That's a lot of history for you. Uh, Let's talk about our present context. Let's just, let's apply this to our present day world. Because I think if you observe the world, the culture in which we live, there's not a lot of difference between Paul presenting this information to the city of Athens as there is for us to present the gospel in our American cultural context. As Paul said to the Athenians, you live in a very, you are a very religious people. You could say the American society is a very religious culture. Now, some people would balk at that idea, and they would say, well, I'm not, I'm not religious, I'm more, I'm more spiritual. I don't know if you've heard people say that before. The idea is still the same, though. We've got lots of different people in this, in this culture of lots of different religions, philosophical ideas, different, different ideas about things. And so I want to ask you, if you were given the opportunity to be invited to a group of non-Christian people, that have their own ideas about religion and spirituality, but they were open to listening to you. And they said, I want you to come to us and tell us what you believe about this Jesus guy. We're interested to know. Christian brothers and sisters in this room, my friends, would you know what to say? Would you know where to start? What would you, what would you do? How could you tell of the hope that you have in Jesus? In what way would you do it? How did Paul do it? Paul knew, he knew the word of God so well that it was, it was within him that he was able to tell this grand story in a very simple way to the people of Athens. He knew the word of God so well it was within him. And Paul could, at different places, to the Jews, apply the word of God in a different way. He knew God's word so well that it was within him that the story of salvation simply came off of his tongue. So, if you were to have that opportunity, what would you do? What would you say? Where would you start? And many of you might be thinking, uh, gee, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of hope I never have that opportunity, maybe some of you are thinking, right? If that's what you're thinking, if you're thinking, man, I don't, know where, I don't know where I would start. Let me just plain and simple say it like this. You need to open up your Bibles and start reading them. Okay? You need to open up your Bibles and, and start reading them. 
Because how are you supposed to know the Word of God so well that you can simply talk about it if you, if you haven't learned it? And where can you learn it best? By reading it. By reading it. I want to share with you a few, I'll say gasp, alarming statistics about the state of the Bible in the American Christian church, in the lives of American Christians. Perhaps you've heard it said that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Year after year, it, it tops the charts way, way, way above anything on the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if you know that. But it's, it's just in a league of its own that they don't even include it because it, it just it wins every time. All right? But here's, here's a statistic from the American Bible Society. Almost 9 out of 10 households, 87% of American households, have a printed Bible in their homes. And the average household has three. Now, we're talking about printed Bibles here. This is not even including the access that you have on the internet or apps or, or, or what, whatever. The, 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 think of the access that you have to the Word of God. This is print Bibles. Now, that seems like a great thing. This is all Americans, not just Christians, all Americans. But I want to show you a, a more staggering statistic, and, and here's, a, here's a little pie chart um, we'll put up here. If you look on the right-hand yeah, right side, um, that's more dealing with how much of the Bible have you read? 10%, none of it. 13%, only a few. 30%, several passages. 15%, at least half of it. 12%, almost all of it. And then you get to these 11% and 9%. So essentially 20% of American Christians have read the whole Bible. Okay. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but where do, you, where do you fall in that? How are we supposed to know what the Word of God is? How are we supposed to know this truth so well that we can give an account of, of the story of salvation in a, in a simple way if we don't know what the Word of God is, if, we, if we've never read it? In the Gospel lesson for today, in John chapter 8, Jesus said this, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, what's another word for abide? Live. If you live in my word, you are truly my disciples. Live in my word. What, is, what does that mean? I, this is not just a nice idea. This is practicality for you uh, Christian friends. It means spend time in God's word. Listen to his word. And in his word, he wants to shower you with his grace. He wants you to be a witness of his resurrection, of which you can be when you read about it in the scriptures from the, for the firsthand eyewitnesses. You read of it and you go, wow, I've seen it. I know Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you to know that he's defeated death for you. He wants to know that he's conquered the grave for you. He wants you to know that today you have the forgiveness of sins. Today you are set free. Today you are new. Today today. This is all what Jesus says, and he wants you to experience when he says, abide in my word. However, let me show you one more statistic. An organization called Lifeway Research uh, surveyed more than 2,900 Protestant churchgoers, and they found that, that 90%, as they say, I desire to please and honor Jesus in all I say and do. 90% of Christians, churchgoers say this. That's great, right? I want, to, I want to please and honor Jesus in all I say and do. You know how many of them read the Bible every day? 19%. 19%. How, how are you supposed to know what Jesus wants you to do and say if you're not, if you're not in the Word of God? Those are some alarming statistics. I, I don't know how we fall or fare 
in that as a congregation, but I would assume it's probably in lockstep with it. We need to be people who read the Word of God so that it becomes part of us, so that when the opportunities present themselves, we can speak the truth of what we believe, of what it is that Jesus has done for us, so that we can be ready at any time to give an account of this hope that we have in Jesus. Now, I totally, wholeheartedly understand and have experienced myself how intimidating Bible reading can be. I'm saying this to you as your pastor. I too understand how imi- in, in, imitating, intimidating, intimidating it can be to open up the scripture. Sometimes it seems overwhelming. Maybe you start reading and you say, I don't, I don't know where to start. I don't know what I just read. I don't know if I want to keep reading because it, it doesn't really make sense and I don't know what's going on. I'll just say it like this. Daily Bible reading is a healthy habit. It's a healthy habit, and just like all healthy habits, it's incredibly difficult to start. You know, if you've ever started a new eating plan in your homes, maybe, maybe you've started a new eating plan, a diet plan, and when you look at that, you say, I have no idea how I'm not supposed to eat X, Y, and Z. What other foods are there? Right? I'm, I'm going to starve. And then you eliminate X, Y, and Z, and you didn't starve, and you, you can do it. Or maybe you start going to the gym and you get to the gym and you, and you look at all this equipment that you think could kill you and you see all the really buff people that you think could probably kill you and you just want to turn around and walk out and you think, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. But then you start and you keep going and you keep going and it becomes a healthy habit, something that you cannot live without. My dear friends in Christ, I, I simply ask you, how would you explain to people when they invite you and are open to the hope that you have in Jesus, what would you say? Would you know how to explain the hope you have in Jesus? As I mentioned during the announcements today, today is the celebration, the 501st anniversary of the Reformation that began under Martin Luther in the, in the, in the country of Germany in 1517. We can credit Martin Luther with having uh, the written word of the scriptures available for us in our everyday language. Martin Luther was the first to translate the Bible into the everyday language of people and, and distribute it to the printing press, which is a new invention, and get the word out. Luther wrote a lot of things, but today I don't want to focus necessarily on what he wrote, but on an image that he designed. And I, w- I just want to show you an image that he designed. We'll put this up on the screen. We call this Luther's rose or, or Luther's seal. Uh, Maybe you've seen this before. It's a common image that's tied to the Lutheran church. But Luther wanted to have an image that described his understanding of who God is and who he was as a broken, sinful, yet fully redeemed person. And he wanted to have this visual reminder to him to explain his Christian faith. And so I want to show you, this is one paragraph that Luther wrote about this des- describing this image. So let me read this for you. Luther says, First, there's a black cross in a heart that remains its natural color. This is to remind me that it is faith in the crucified one that saves us, and anyone who believes from the heart will be justified. The cross is black, which mortifies and causes pain, but it leaves the heart its natural color. It doesn't destroy nature. That is to say, it doesn't kill us, but it actually keeps us alive, for the just shall live by faith in the crucified one. Now the heart should stand in the middle of a white rose, and this is to show that faith gives joy, comfort, and peace. It puts the believer into a white, joyous rose. 
Faith does not give peace and joy like the world gives. And this is why the rose must be white, not red. White is the color of the spirits and the angels. This rose should stand in a sky blue field, symbolizing that a joyful spirit and faith is a beginning of heavenly future joy, which begins now but is grasped in hope not yet fully revealed. And around the field of blue is a golden ring to symbolize that blessedness in heaven that lasts forever and has no end. Heavenly blessedness is exquisite, beyond all joy and better than any possessions, just as gold is the most valuable and precious metal. This is Luther's image. It was one way, a a way to be able to see the faith. My dear friends, for you to be able to stand in your Areopagus of today, when you are invited to, to speak of the hope that you have in Jesus, this is a world that is mired in many different options, many different suggestions of what one should believe. And there's, there's no common source of moral authority even. So what will you say when you're given the opportunity? You've got to start by getting to know God, to get to know his word. And so my challenge to you is to open up the Bible every single day of your lives. Start reading something. As part of this journey through the book of Acts, we're providing a daily Bible reading for you. It's printed for you in the notes and news section of your bulletin, a short little thing that you can read in less than five minutes. I'm encouraging you to open up the Bible, start reading something on a daily basis. On your way out today, we've made a little bookmark of Luther's Rose, an image of the faith. And, and on the back, those, that long paragraph that I read for you is printed on the back. I encourage you to take one of these. The ushers will have them that they can pass out. And as you go to do your daily Bible reading, you can put this in your Bible as a reminder to you to give you another image, another way for you to be able to explain the faith so that you understand this overarching story. The story that says once again that you have a God who is a creator God, a God that has never abandoned his sinful creation, never forsaken it, but a God who has come for it. Your God came for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He stepped into your flesh. He bore your sin on the cross and he died in order that you can be forgiven. But that cross did not get the last say. Jesus rose from the dead, proving victory even over death and Satan. And Christ will come once again to make all things new and to give you that blessed joy and peace and the everlasting life that awaits every single one of you. Go in the peace and the joy that only Jesus can bring in his name. Amen. Amen.